the login. Good morning again and welcome to our Bible study of Nehemiah. We are in the Old Testament and Kevin just read a portion of the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation, which also talks about Jerusalem, but it talks about our future Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah, if you've been with us, you know that Nehemiah was called by God, um, led by God, provided for by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There's a a little bit different picture than what we just heard read up here because the walls of Jerusalem were absolutely decimated. They were torn down because Israel had sinned against God over and over and over again through their history. And God brought in a foreign nation took them out of Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and brought them, scattered them all over the world. And at this point in time, in about 445 BC, we're looking at uh, the Jews being under the power of the Persians because they were ruling the world at the time. But the Persians were not as brutal as, let's say, the Babylonians or the Assyrians They were more political, very powerful, powerful uh, nation or or force, I guess you could say, because they were all over the place. Um, But at the same time, they were they wanted to keep the peace and they were very friendly towards other the people that they were under. As long as they followed the rules, they would allow them to practice their religion and do things like that. So King Artaxerxes said to his cupbearer, Nehemiah, yes, go. What's wrong with you? You look down. You look downtrodden. And he was saying, the walls of my city are, you know, and my people, and uh, they're just destroyed. Can I go and rebuild them? And God gave him favor, and he went and did that. And so we saw throughout that journey an amazing parallel between the book of Nehemiah and our journey as a Christian. Not only the book of Nehemiah, but the person of Nehemiah in our journey as a Christian. Nehemiah has been through lots of challenges. <clears throat> He's been through lots of opposition. He's been through opposition from those that are, had already been in Jerusalem for the past, let's say, hundred or so years since Israel had been let out of exile. And they liked it. You know, they were running their businesses, running their show. They had their own rulers in place. And here comes Nehemiah ready to rebuild the walls, which when a city rebuilds its walls, what, is, what does that usually tell you? They're, they're, they're doing it to protect so are they rising up to try to, to rebel against the king? What's going on here? <clears throat> so Nehemiah also found he had some uh, opposition from within. The very Jews that were there that had returned from the first, returned with the first exile, uh, returned exiles, which was with Zerubbabel about 75 years prior, they sort of ended up uh, you know, being the ones that took over Jerusalem and they started taxing the people, even the poor. And uh, Nehemiah was getting flack for that. So he had to really go in and straighten a lot of things out. The funny thing is, Nehemiah didn't know anything about what he was walking into because Persia, where he was, was 800 miles away. And so we saw, you know, uh, last week we were in chapter 6. And we saw Nehemiah's discernment and not being tricked into going out and meeting his enemies, Sambalot, and uh, 
Tobiah and, and, and Geshem the Arab. He said, no, I'm not going to go out and meet you in the desert because I know what you're going to do. You're going to kill me. And they continued to threaten him. They sent him false prophets. But Nehemiah stood firm to what God had called him to do. And the exciting thing about the 73 verses in the passage we're going to cover today, don't be afraid, chapter 7 is 73 verses, but we're not going to go through, uh, we're not going to hang on every verse because a lot of it is genealogies. And it's not that the genealogies aren't important, but especially in chapter 7 in Nehemiah, it's not so much who is coming, but what exactly they are doing by coming into Jerusalem to repopulate the city. And so, and also what we're going to see, what it symbolizes. So I'm going to read from, um, from chapter 7. I'm going to read down to uh, uh, the first uh, five or six verses, and uh, you could follow along on the monitors. It says in verse 1, Now when the wall was rebuilt, <clears throat> and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than any than many. So here we see the wall it has been completed. It was built as opposed to where it was partially built up to halfway. I guess it was, uh, this is uh, showing us that it is now complete. And this is what he said in verse three. I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Again, they were very cautious now. And he also said, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious. Now at the time, Jerusalem was probably about 40 acres, maybe. But the people in it were few and the houses were not built. And so it was sort of the wall was there. The temple was there but it still looked like uh, uh, pretty much a pile of ashes. Verse five, again, we see this a lot, don't we? Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, David actually got punished for going out and counting the people. But that was for because of a different motive. Here we see God putting it into his heart to do this. God saying, go enroll the Jewish people into genealogy so we can identify their family because God wanted it done for a very important purpose, which we're, we're going to talk about. And we see this happening throughout all of Nehemiah. And I have a sneaky suspicion it even happens now once in a while. God puts stuff in our heart, doesn't he? He leads us. And that's what we, that's the crux of being a believer, the crux of being a Christian. Okay, we are to be, as Greg said when he was giving his testimony here, mini Christs. That's what Christian means. And remember, what what did we say when we, we talked about Jesus not considering equality with God something to be grasped? He wasn't going around flexing his muscles as God, he emptied himself. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. And that's what we need to do as Christians. Not considering, uh, you know, being a Christian, something that can be grasped on our own. How do we become a Christian? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But how do we live the Christian life? By emptying ourselves and trusting God. 
So we see this a lot, especially here in Nehemiah. So he assembled the officials and the people to enroll them in genealogies. And then he found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in which I found the following record. And so now from verse six, all the way pretty much to the end of the chapter, we see the genealogies, groups of different people. And then towards the end of the chapter, we see some of the gifts and and the totals and, and that sort of thing. Um, but again, this, this here is not the genealogies of the people that came with Nehemiah. These are the people that came 75, 80 years ago with Zerubbabel. And so they were living in Jerusalem. But again, there was probably a little bit more population. Nehemiah built the walls around. And now what has to happen is, is to be able to rebuild Israel, as God promised, he needed to gather and regroup his people. And that had to be those of the Jewish race, those that were true Israelites, not because God is racist, but because the Messiah was to come as promised through God, through the people of God. And that could not become messed up or mixed up or meshed up. That Messiah had to come out of that pure line from Adam in order to do his ministry. So you're going to see, so if you, if you look at, you don't go there now, but if you go to Ezra chapter 2, it's identical almost with the, this genealogy here because Ezra in chapter 2, he lists all of the genealogies that, were, that came from the first return with Zerubbabel. Hope, hopefully that doesn't mess you up and confuse you too much. If it does, <clears throat> this will confuse you even more what I'm about to talk to you about. So it's not over yet. So what is all this? Where are we going with all this today? Well, the one thing that jumps out at me in this chapter, it's a very exciting chapter because it's one of those chapters when when you really, when you're reading it here, it's like, okay, this is what it's saying. But now when you go back, you know, it's like one of those, one of those illusions, you know, that you look at when you look at it for a long time, like 10 seconds, it turns into something like, where did that come from? Well, this is the word of God. This is inspired by God. This is God's breath. And so the riches are unfathomable. You can dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And one of the ways to do that and to see and to to get into Scripture and to dig in beyond just what it says on the surface is there's something in Scripture called typology. And typology is a form of biblical interpretation that's founded on the assumption that God, throughout the whole entire Old Testament, placed anticipations or glimpses or maybe signposts to Christ in the New Testament. He did this through the laws of the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament, the events, the people, the themes. And these themes in the Old Testament that prefigure Christ are known as types. Okay, so... For instance, Jonah may be seen as a type of Christ in that he emerged from the fish's belly and thus appeared to rise from dead, from the death, from his death in the belly. So you see there's the type there. Jonah is the type. Christ is the anti-type, okay, which is that fulfillment. We see the same thing with Noah's Ark, carrying the chosen family through the deadly waters of the flood to salvation. The ark can be viewed as a type of Christ 
that saved people from destruction. So hopefully you're, you're getting to that. So when we look, when you're, you're, you're grasping onto that, types can point to subtle antitypes and, uh, or supernatural antitypes. And the, like, for instance, manna was given in the Old Testament as food given by God in the wilderness. And this is a type of the supernatural spiritual food that Christ's body offers us when we receive him. And so in Nehemiah chapter 7, as a whole, when looked at closely and stared at for a while, it's a smaller type, but with a very large antitype in the New Testament. Now at this point, and I'm going to tell you what that is, but I just want to again remember, Nehemiah has overcome threats, opposition, he finished the wall, and what does he do? He appoints leaders, servants, he becomes a manager over the city of Jerusalem and commands the people to stand guard at the gates. So we see him serving and guarding and creating systems as such. And then he takes a census of the people, as we just talked about. So this, this, these elements of chapter 7 point to a very large antitype, which, which really is Nehemiah, which this isn't some new thing, I, we've been talking about this, prefigures the Christian life. But he also prefigures the mission of the Christian on this earth. And that is to rebuild for New Jerusalem or the New Jerusalem that we see coming out of heaven symbolically through in Revelation 21. And so this New Jerusalem coming down could be seen as the same thing as the new creation, as the kingdom of God however you would prefer to say it. But what I want to look at today is not only the model that Nehemiah left us on how we are to live out our Christian life, building towards this project that God is doing of making this earth his temple. Not something we have to grasp on. This earth, and it started in Eden, its ultimate goal is to be fully 100% indwelt by the presence of God without any sin, without any tears, without anything that's not of God, separating the holy from the unholy, the clean from the unclean. And we see a beautiful picture of this in Nehemiah. Also, we see a picture of this in the temple itself. See, the temple itself is a microcosm of what this whole earth will be one day. And not even just the temple, but the inner sanctuary of the temple. You know what that's called, right? The Holy of Holies. Only one person can enter in there once a year, and that is the high priest. He does that on the Day of Atonement. But that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is a picture of that Holy of Holies. It's actually measured the same way. All of its sides are equal. The book of Revelation is a very apocalyptic, symbolic book, which is literal, but it's not literal in the term, in, in, in like where we actually see it's a, it's a prophecy. And so when we see this coming down, we see God showing us, wow, the new Jerusalem is going to be that like the Holy of Holies, the new earth, the new heaven, that we're building and working towards is going to be 
like the Holy of Holies. What is that? Only one person can come in? No, all of God's people will be able to come in and be in his presence. And the, and, the, and the scripture says, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. That's what it's pointing to. If you want to read Psalm 98, I, I suggest that you do that. <clears throat> so Nehemiah here, I want to look at how we are to live out our Christian life building for this new creation, kingdom of God, new Jerusalem, whatever you prefer. But also look into this big picture in Nehemiah 7 of what God has been doing since the very beginning, and that is preparing the world for this amazing, um, cataclysmic, I guess, in in a positive way, infiltration of God's presence on this earth. And that's what you and I are a picture of. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are also a type of that going forward. And so I want to look at that and I want to make sure our lives fit in correctly to this picture now. We can't wait till then. We we have a very much, uh, we we love to divide up our our life as Christians. Well, I'm here on earth, just passing through, and then I'm going to be off to heaven. And that may be true. There's elements of that, that that are true, obviously. When we die, we're present with the Lord. But then we're going to get, again, be, if you heard me say this once, you heard me say this a thousand times, because this is what we have to keep our eyes on. We are going to be raised from the dead in this new Jerusalem, in a new body, in a physicality. It's going to be physical. Okay? It's not floating around. Spiritual does not mean unphysical. Okay? And that's what we have to get our mind wrapped around. So I want to look at how Nehemiah was this type of Christian, this type of, uh, uh, he, he was doing it in his whole book is this type of mission that Christians are on. And the whole thing, I believe, anchors on this first passage in chapter 7, where he served and he guarded. Okay, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but look what he did. Nehemiah, when he put the wall up, he then, the first thing he did is he set up servants. Door, uh, he, after he set up the doors, gatekeepers, singers, and the Levites were appointed. And he, he brought his brother in to lead. But where does this, this, this thing actually come from? What is he trying to show us? And why is this such a type of that future new Jerusalem? You see, because if we go backwards, stay with me here. If we go backwards... The new Jerusalem that we read about in our opening, for those of you that were here. The new Jerusalem that we read about in our opening was, is an antitype of the very, very first pages of chapters of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. You see, that Garden of Eden was God's presence. It was that holy of holies. And Adam was put there. It says in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate. The Hebrew word is abad. It means to serve. If you look it up. And he put him there to keep it, which is the word shamar, which means to guard. 
So again, and we, this was echoing chapter one of Genesis where he's to go be fruitful and multiply, take dominion. And so when we look at Nehemiah setting up the new Jerusalem, I'm sorry, setting up or fixing and rebuilding the old Jerusalem, and we see this picture of serving and guarding, we can't help but go back to Eden to that original vocation of mankind, serve and guard. And as Adam was supposed to serve God and guard, what was he supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. So it wasn't that he was serving and guarding like a little garden like this box right here. No, the purpose was to take this and spread it out through the whole world. And as you go do that, you're expanding God's holy presence. And then he sinned. But God says, no, my glory will still populate the whole earth. This is part of the plan. Now I am going to, Adam failed. Now I'm going to raise up Israel. And I myself, Jesus saying this, I'm going to become part of Israel. I'm going to become a human. I am going to come through that holy seed connected directly to Adam and his mistake. And I am going to be the new Adam, the second Adam, the faithful Adam that doesn't fail. And I am going to bring that forth. And we are going to bring it all the way to the return of Christ when he comes back with his glory so present that there will be no need for a sun to illuminate the earth. And there won't be any temple there either because the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. And so do you see where this culmination is coming from? Nehemiah is this picture of a priest. He's this picture of what Adam was supposed to be, what Israel was supposed to be, what we are supposed to be, and that is priests unto God. Exodus 19, 6, you shall, and this is talking to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They didn't seem that like that, did they? Oh, but they will be in that new Jerusalem, in the new creation. Adam's first vocation was this priest in Eden, and that for mankind has never, ever changed, ever. We are called to be priests unto God, but sin is what separates priests from being, or or, I'm sorry, from people being able to go into the presence of God. So God creates a priest who he's going to create in God's, own way so that he could be prepared enough to be holy enough one day a year to enter into God's presence. And every day sacrifices, blood had to be poured out on the altar in the temple every single day because of sin, constantly around the clock to constantly, with the Israelites at the time said, yes, this is definitely covering our sin, but it never changed their heart. It could only cover it. And then they find out when Jesus comes, the mystery is revealed. All that was simply pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so we have to understand this as Nehemiah is serving and guarding. That's the same thing our job is as priests right now. Our vocation is is to serve and guard the new Jerusalem now. Why do I say that? How does that work? Because again, there is not a a discontinuity like we think there is in the new creation, in the resurrection. 
heaven, however you want to call it. Yes, we have death, but that's only a temporary, temporary thing to be in the ground. God is going to bring up our body, raise it from the dead, like we said, and then we're going to be raised up in that new Jerusalem. But everything we do now in the body, read 1 Corinthians 15. Everything we do now in the body is being contributed and, and is working towards this new thing, this new Jerusalem, this new the kingdom that's coming in its fullness. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so we must be about not just saying, let me just say the prayer, check off the Christian boxes. No, you are, a, you are in the army, you're in the military, you've just been given your armor, you're in a war to build for that new Jerusalem. Just like Nehemiah is. He's appointing guards, he's, he's appointing servants, he's structuring things, he's making sure Jerusalem is managed properly. With what though? With godly people, godly systems, godly structures. And that's what we have to do as Christians now. The first thing Nehemiah did was he pointed his brother Hanani. It says here Hanani and Hananiah. Some commentators think it's the same person. I, just, I can't find any, it's, uh, any reason why it would be. In all the translations, it seems to say the same thing. But in any case, he brought two guys here that were faithful. They feared God. They were faithful men. Don't you remember in the first chapter of Nehemiah, who came to Nehemiah with the news about Jerusalem and the bad shape it was in? It was his brother Hanani. And, and he was used by God. And so he puts, Nehemiah, he puts this guy in charge of Jerusalem because why? He's a faithful man and he feared God. That's why we have no business being yoked with unbelievers and things. Because you may meet somebody, and I'm not just talking about relationships, man and woman. I'm talking about business relationships. I'm talking about anything where you're in a marriage contract with somebody. And like a business partner. You know, you have to be very careful because they may not put fearing God and faithfulness as number one. But that's what God does. That's what he wants. He wants people that fear him and that trust him to be in charge. And we see the structures, the systems, all the structures and systems Nehemiah is putting in. He's delegating to the Levites who are in charge of all these people, these servants and guards. He told them when to open the gates, when to shut the gates. Make sure that this is protected. You see? This, it's, and this is what we have to do here. We have to manage our lives like Nehemiah is managing Jerusalem. That's where it starts. Before we start to think about managing the new creation, let's start managing ourself. Put those godly systems in place. Put those godly people around you. Put those godly structures around you that are going to keep you from falling and being tempted into sin. We also see that Nehemiah set up structures for financial giving. He budgeted. He even gave money himself. That's towards the end of the chapter. But managing ourself, what about structures? Family. Are you managing your family well? Unto the Lord with godly people and godly systems in place. Church. Church. That's our job as Christians. This is our local church. 
The people that you're sitting around you, looking at you and hearing that, you, the God said, I want you to love those people. That's, God, that's a godly structure and a godly system. Those are the people that God wants us, you and I and all of us should tie our hearts together in Christ. Regardless of our differences, our colors, our, even some of our non-essential beliefs, we have to put systems in place that are going to carry this mission out to the, to the, to the end of that new creation. And, what, and, and of course, this big genealogy. What is all about this big genealogy? Well, it's about separating the clean from the unclean in this new city. Separating the clean from the unclean. <clears throat> now, he's properly planning for repopulation, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how this is going to play itself out. Nehemiah said, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to get, and the cool thing next week is really good because chapter 8 is when they start to celebrate the Feast of Booths again. Ezra comes and reads the law, and we start to even get this bigger picture of, wow, Nehemiah, called by God, burdened by God, provided for by God, guided by God, opposition, saved by God, his own people, led by God. How selflessness, discernment, we're getting all this stuff from the book. Of, and now we're going to see next week or the week after about how the word of God played out in all this. But Nehemiah was banning the unclean. You see, if you look at all this genealogies, if you don't have to, you don't have it on the monitor. If you have your Bible, fine, but don't go crazy trying to get it because you'll miss the point. The point is, is that he categorized the number of people that came in. First, he listed all the families, the reputable families. These are probably the money people. These are probably the people that were there from the very, very, very beginning. Why is that important? These are the people that gave their life to come back to Jerusalem. They gave up everything. They gave up the great life in Babylon because it was a good life. God said, settle down there, build houses, have businesses, live your life, eat, drink, and be merry. But these people had a heart for the works of God, and they gave up that, that life to commit 100% to the work of God, the promise that he's going to regather his people. Yeah, our family will go. Well, what about, what about all this land we got? And, and you work for, you know, you work in, in, in the governor's house, and we got it made. You want to move and go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple again this was before this was 80 years before 75 years before so we see all the families then we see in verse 39 the priests then we see the Levites and in 46 the temple ser uh, servants and what I love is he includes here the son of Solomon's servants the sons of Solomon's servants I'll tell you hopefully if I remember and get to it why that, I believe, is, was added in here and why it's critical. But if I tell you now, I'll confuse you. All the temple servants, and they start to number them. And then they, we get to the verse, to get to verse 61 to verse 65, where a bunch of people that are claiming to be priests and claiming to be a part of the people of God can't be found in the genealogy. Their name was not found in the book of the genealogy. Does that sound familiar? Their names were not found in the book of life. We've heard about that in Revelation, the same chapter we just read out of. These genealogies, 
are to keep out the unclean. And when we go to Revelation 21, we see this uncleanliness being talked about here. We, 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 we hear what, what Kevin read earlier, that the new Jerusalem in verse 10, coming down perfectly, again, symbolically, and the walls having foundation stones that represent the apostles, and the gates being pearl that represent each tribe of Israel. What's that showing us? All of the people of God, perfect number of the people of God are there in the perfect presence of that new world that is coming down. In verse 16, the city is laid out as a square. Like I said, same as that as the Holy of Holies. But here's really what blows me away. In verse 18 and 21, it talks about the material of the wall of this new Jerusalem coming down. It was jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundation stones of the city, and they go through jasper, the second, the third, the fourth. And all of these emeralds, you know, jacinth, uh, kiropras, uh, uh, amethyst, and I'm probably saying a couple of these wrong, I didn't rehearse a lot of them. But these are all precious, colorful stones, the same exact stones that were on the priest's chest when he ministered unto the Lord. The same some of the same stones that were also mentioned in the Garden of Eden, especially gold and onyx. And so we see this connection from the Garden of Eden. We see this connection with the priesthood that's required in Nehemiah to set up this new city, the serving and the guarding. And now we see a connection to the new Jerusalem from the old Jerusalem And here we see this new Jerusalem made up of the very stones that are on the chest of the priest. See, the priest was a mini creation of God, was a mini temple of God, is what those stones meant. When you read and dig into the priesthood, every tiny little element of the priest's garb pointed to the glory of God, pointed to the heavens, the earth, pointed to the the expanse of the stars, the zodiac even, not what we're talking about today with astrology, but this was to represent that God was over all and this was his image. The priest was his image. And so this priestly breastplate, that's why Nehemiah said, you know, we're going to have to wait until we get this this, uh, stone called Urim and Thummim, which were also two stones over the heart of the priest. And they were supposed to let the priest know what was right and what was wrong. It was called the breastplate of judgment. So Nehemiah was telling these people, until we get those stones and you go before the priests, we cannot let you in. You are out. You cannot partake of the holy things. And so this is very important for us now because these, these people that were populated in Nehemiah's Jerusalem and the people that will be populated in the new Jerusalem are only going to be those that are, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's going to be nobody else. Listen to this. Verse 22. I saw no temple in this Jerusalem. There's no temple. We saw this. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. We're in God here. Remember that. We're in Christ. He's illuminating the whole entire place. The nations are walking by the light in verse 24. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
Now listen to 25. Here's another direct connection back to Nehemiah 7. It says, in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring uh, glory and the honor of the nations into it. So basically, remember what Nehemiah said? Lock the gates, bolt the gates. At, at noontime, that's when you open them up. But, Nehemiah, but in the new one, it's like all day and night is going to be daytime. And the gates are always going to be unlocked because there's going to be nothing unclean to enter. It's going to be gone. We read that here in verse 8 of 21. It says, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters. Sorcerers comes from the word pharmacia. If you could put that together. And idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice from from the womb and born again by the Spirit of God, you will only die once. You won't have a second death. And here's what it says in verse 27 about the city. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so Nehemiah is showing us a picture here of the end, which really is the beginning. Because once we become, once we become Christ's, our names are written in the book of life. Now, you, I don't know, are they already written in the book of life? Or are they written after? We know that God knows whose are his. So that's regardless. The question remains is where are you at right now? Where are you now? Are you properly serving and guarding? Are you separating the clean from the unclean? Have you come to Christ to become clean? Would your name be listed here and the number of people accepted into into this kingdom? that Nehemiah is rebuilding, prefiguring the kingdom of God. This is what my burden is. This is what your burden should be. Is my name written here? And if you are Christ's, if Christ were to return today, then you would be in that new Jerusalem. If not, the Bible says very clearly, you will perish. You'll be separated from God. But you can't blame God. Because look what he's showing us here. He's giving us the grace of his blood on the cross to cover and pay for our sins forever. You say, well, I love God. Yeah, I want to, you know, I want to be with him forever. Well, why, why are you not with him now? Oh, no, I want to be with him in heaven. But now I'm, I'm sort of doing my thing. It doesn't work that way. If you don't want to be with Christ right now forever, you're not going to be, you're not going to want to be with Christ when you get to forever. You're not going to want to be with him. But he's inviting you into the city. He's inviting you into this family that he's started. And he wants you to empty yourself and come and obey. And look at Nehemiah as this example. This man is a man of God that really, I, I, I could, I, he reminds me of Christ, who was so powerful, yet was so humble and obedient. And that's exactly what we have to do. 
So do you want to be with Christ now? This is a good indication if you want to be with him in the new creation. If you want to be with him in this, this new creation has begun at your new birth in Christ, at the resurrection of Jesus. That power has infiltrated you if you believe in Christ. He will forgive your sins, not just your past sins, but the sins that, you're, that are impossible for you right now. And he'll give you power to overcome those sins and live the life that he has called you to live. Being able to live in that new city. But maybe right now you don't know. You need to, you need to go before the, you know, the Urim and Thummim and say, search my heart, Lord. Reveal to me what it is you want me to do. We don't have tomorrow, people. We think we do. We think we're never going to die. I don't like to talk about that death and threat. Oh, you die, you know, it's last chance. But God did create time. He did create urgency. He did create the very, uh, you know, word of God. It is his breath. And it does say that if we die in our sin, we're separated from God forever. But if we come to him in trust and rely on his grace, the Bible says that he will never cast you away. Past, present, future sins are nailed to the cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this glimpse into this tremendous victory of Jesus at the cross. Lord, we're never going to know on how far and wide and how deep this, the blood of Christ goes to renew and to restore. But it's just so exciting to see. And it's so hopeful, Lord, um, to know that amidst the trial, the tribulations, the sinfulness in this world, the wickedness in this world, that we have a God of love that, is, that has this all figured out. And Lord, like you said in your word, we're not gonna, we don't understand what you have for us. It's that glorious. We don't know uh, beyond what is written. And we don't wanna know, Lord. We just wanna trust. So help us do that. Help us walk with you. Help us turn from sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.